Let's do it. Welcome one, welcome all to episode two of the Xbox Expansion Pass recorded on Sunday, October 13th, 2019. I am your host, Luke Lord, the insipid ghost, and it is on Xbox Expansion Pass that we discuss all things in the gaming verse as they pertain to the Microsoft ecosystem. On this week's episode, we'll be talking about the PlayStation 5 announcement for holiday 2020, some of the details that were released for it, and what that might mean for Project Scarlet. Google Stadia is said to have something uh, akin to negative latency. How does this impact xCloud, or what the future of Scarlet may be? Upcoming games like Call of Duty Modern Warfare, The Outer Worlds, Jedi Fallen Order are all on the docket. And of course, my thoughts on Ghostbusters Remastered. And then a final thought and thesis on what makes a bad game, or what makes a game bad, per se. We're going to look at some of the double, double A uh, discussion points and games that have been coming out and uh, look at what, what we really mean as gamers when we dive into those particular topics. Uh, on the lighter news note, and not really so much a major issue, but on last week's episode, I discussed some of the games I was excited for that are coming out soon, and included in that was Doom Eternal. Now, kind of in the wake of that recording, it was announced that Doom Eternal has been delayed to March 20th, 2020, and I gotta tell you, I'm a bit heartbroken, because I absolutely love Doom as a franchise. I love Doom 1, Doom 2, I really dug Doom 3, even though it was such a grand departure from... Uh, kind of that Doom formula, that running gun. It was more of a horror title, uh, and I do indeed love horror games. And to see Doom Eternal delayed uh, makes me nervous. However, given given that Bethesda needs a win, given that uh, id Software is so indeed talented at their gunplay, again, I talked about Rage 2 last week uh, and how much I enjoyed just the gunplay there. If the team behind Doom Eternal needs more time, I think it is only appropriate and apt that we as gamers allow for them to have that time. Uh, Doom 2016 did not disappoint, and in not disappointing, they certainly set a high bar for themselves. And in a year that is uh, particularly strange with titles, we are I don't think there's a clear frontrunner for what Game of the Year truly is in 2019 right now, universally across all platforms. I think you could make some arguments for Apex Legends, for Resident Evil 2's remake, uh, perhaps a, a couple others in there. I've heard some people suggest Borderlands. I know Control is in the conversation for some people. Uh, Gears 5 certainly in the conversation for plenty of, of Microsoft and Xbox uh, gamers. But I don't think there's a clear frontrunner this year. And in such an odd year, uh, Doom Eternal might have played well. However, if Doom can play better, particularly in a transition year, to PS5, to Scarlet, uh, and allow itself to be a bridge title, a, a display of what uh, impressive graphics at the end of the generation could be, and then leaping forward and taking that jump into the next gen, uh, I'm fine with this delay. I think it's a good thing. I think it is an absolute uh, good thing, despite the fact that I'm a bit sad. But, I mean, you know, at the end of this month, we have Call of Duty Modern Warfare for, for shooter fans, the Outer Worlds, for those who are into to the RPG sense and the Fallout-type verse, uh, and Jedi Fallen Order, which is a game that 
Again, I still don't know what it is. I mean, is it a Metroidvania? Are we playing Dark Souls here? Whatever. I'm buying it. It's Star Wars. Who knows? Let's dive into a different conversation. A conversation that has been ripe with a number of different perspectives, a number of different ideas, and a number of different considerations. And that is that PlayStation 5 is officially announced for holiday 2020. The name will indeed be PlayStation 5. This was announced in a Wired article that was kind of combined and coincided with a post from the PlayStation blog. And a couple of the notable points uh, were that games can be custom installed. You can focus on single player, multiplayer, and I would imagine some more finite details within there uh, that developers can take advantage of. The DualShock 5 is said to have adaptive triggers and haptic feedback, running with USB-C, larger battery. Uh, ray tracing is occurring at the hardware level. Uh, there, there are a number of different developers that are creating content for the PlayStation 5, and that's not surprising by any means. Uh, and lastly, there's no need for kind of gameplay loading tricks. You don't need to sit on an elevator waiting for things to load. You don't need to jump into a subway waiting for things to load. Uh, and so those are all great things. What does this mean for Microsoft and the Xbox ecosystem? Well, uh, a couple of things stood out to me. Uh, first point, ray tracing at a hardware level, love it. Glad that it's there. Glad that Sony's taking that stance. I would imagine we see Microsoft do the exact same thing. In fact, we've seen them do the, the uh, ray tracing quite well on the Xbox One X. Uh, we know that they are willing to take advantage of those things. They, they, we know that they have an intention to be the most powerful consoles on the market. Uh, regardless of where PS5 lands, I think this is a statement that pushes Microsoft. They've been very good at controlling their own narrative as far as their announcements over the last year or so, you know, being the only ones at E3, talking about Scarlet ahead of time, launching the S, and at the same time announcing the X. They have worked very hard to adjust the way they speak to gamers, and it makes perfect sense that they would work hard uh, to do this yet again. However, I think Sony didn't want that same thing to happen to them. They didn't want the conversation dominated. They wanted to get out ahead and make sure that the next time they have a, a discussion or a conference, uh, they've got certain details out there and they can, they can mention, hey, we've talked about PS5, we're not talking about anything about, about that at this time, and we're going away from it. Uh, who knows? Who knows? But the DualShock 5 adaptive triggers and haptic feedback, uh, to me, this is a great sign. Uh, that they are working on evolving their controller. Now, that said, I don't know that I much care about adaptive triggers. Uh, we see that in the Xbox One controller. It's got that those the resistance and the certain uh, design elements that let you feel the brakes in a, in a driving game, feel the accelerator differently. The, the example used in the Wired article was, you know, feeling the drawstring and the bow if you were to pull back, which certainly, at least to me, suggests they're thinking about Horizon Zero Dawn. But we've seen those kind of resistible uh, triggers in the Xbox One controller, and nobody cared. I certainly didn't care. I mean, I, I thought I was like, oh, cool, neat. Didn't sell a single console as far as I know about. Uh, we saw that early on in the generation, that, that advanced trigger configuration. And I don't know that it did a whole lot of, a lot of stuff for the general consumer. And we're talking about the general people. You know, We're talking about the general public. I doubt they were overly concerned uh, about it. DualShock 4 certainly took some... some uh, attempts at being at being diverse and different with its touch bar, with its light bar, with uh, with the microphone in there. We've seen those used on other controllers at various points. Uh, but DualShock 5, Scarlet Controller, Elite V2, whatever it is that comes in this next generation for controllers, I think the most important button will be that share button. You've got to have a button dedicated towards sharing 
uh, content on screen. I think that was one of the biggest missteps for an otherwise great controller in the Xbox One controller. Uh, you have to be able to share content. It is sharing content and essentially crowdsourcing the message of, of, of what a game can be and sharing and publicizing what it is that, that's on the market and available. And that's game share. You know, you check out or not game share. That is a sharing of content, video clips. And it's an obtuse way that they've gone about it uh, with the current iteration that's on the Xbox platform. And I know that, and that's even, they had, that was a bastardized version. They didn't even have that uh, in the very beginning of, of launch. And so, you know, with news of the DualShock 5 uh, bringing these in, I don't know that that's even the right choice. I'm excited to hear about it because it's fun to hear and talk about new hardware. But I don't know that anybody's really going to care about that trigger stuff. Uh, or it's going to become one of those things like Rumble. You know, we don't really care or notice Rumble anymore. I mean, if it's not there, we might notice. But, I mean, it just seems to kind of come with the territory, and you, you expect a controller to have Rumble. Switch Lite notwithstanding, I suppose. Uh, the other part of that is I don't need or care for HD Rumble, at least not at this point in in my gaming experience. I enjoyed the Switch uh the switch is hd rumble for about six seconds and then i moved on i didn't really care about that feature you know the ice in the bucket and one two switch maybe it's just a poor demonstration for what it otherwise could be but we saw that in the touch bar on the dualshock 4 i mean some games utilized it but then pretty quickly it was abandoned it didn't do much more than just a standard button press people weren't using the weren't using the touch bar for anything uh, incredible we didn't see the triggers on the xbox one controller used for anything incredible and I wonder what that really means uh, going forward. Dig that it's on USB-C. Hope that we see that again. In, or I see it again. Hope that we see it in the Xbox One controllers. Because I'll tell you what, battery packs, some people are absolute advocates for being able to replace their batteries. I can't stand it. I immediately went out and bought charge packs and stands. And so that every time I need to rotate out a controller, I'm not buying new batteries. I've just got rechargeable packs and I move right on. And I need for in the next Scarlet Generation them to just have rechargeable controllers. Now, the Elite V2 has that, and I am hopeful that that means we see more uh, more logical approaches. Just plug your controller up. Keep playing. You don't need to charge. I'm sorry, you don't need to replace batteries. That's an obtuse and, and outdated thing, and I have to imagine that was a marketing deal with Duracell, but I need it to go away. I need it to be done. I need it to be done. The idea that ray tracing is out there, I couldn't tell you what ray tracing is no matter how many times I Google it. I've looked it up a bajillion times. If I read to you off the Wikipedia page, I'd be like, hmm, yes, ray tracing, I get it. But uh, the bottom line is, if this is the next evolution of graphical fidelity and this helps people be immersed in the game, that's great. But I expect that from the next gen. I expect Scarlet and PlayStation 5 to look better, to load faster, to be smoother. That is an expected thing. Uh, and I'm, I'm looking forward to it, but better graphics are not, are not something that I am diehard in, in desperate need of. What I really want is well-made graphics, gra good art styles, uh, impressive visuals that are not just about how many polygons, pixels you can get onto screen, polygons, how many pixels you can get onto screen, but how you're using them and using them well. And I think we've seen plenty of examples for how they're used well throughout uh, every generation of gaming uh, versus kind of more subpar examples so ray tracing at a hardware level i like it because it keeps playstation 5 uh up to par makes it a powerhouse makes it something that's going to push the xbox uh, brand and ecosystem well and i have to imagine that that that's a good thing i i cannot see uh, a place where a powerful ps5 
is bad for Scarlet because it has to push Scarlet and make them better. They certainly know that in this next generation, uh, they've got to compete and they've got to do something to compete. I think gamers would be con- would be kidding themselves if they were to look at look at the the current state of sales and the current state of how many PS4 units versus Xbox One units are out there. Gamers would be c- c- kidding themselves on to to the nth degree. If they thought Scarlet was gonna gonna outsell PlayStation Five uh, in the long run, now hear my words. Hear my words, because fanboyism is silly. Fanboyism is a waste of your energy and time, and it's dumb. You should play games, not systems, and you should enjoy games wherever you can. You have to look at though at the logical install base. Right now, it's at the very least a two to one ratio. For every one Xbox One out there, there are two PlayStation Fours in various you know categories and subcategories there. But that's a huge lead. Two to one in a console generation, that's, a, that's an incredible lead. An incredible lead. Uh, now, the percentage of, and profit made from each user, I would argue uh, Microsoft's doing quite well. They've certainly adapted and rebounded quite well. They've adjusted their own business strategy from the early Don Matrick era to now. Uh, and I'm excited by that. But if, if PlayStation and Xbox fans are demanding backward compatibility, as we see in a number of different kind of polls throughout major websites, IGN and the like, if backward compatibility is indeed so important in this next gen, and forward compatibility is something that we've seen Microsoft commit to, that would suggest that if, if PlayStation is, is utilizing that, that gamers need not transfer major libraries, or rather lose major libraries, they can just transfer to the next one, you're keeping your customer within your ecosystem. That suggests a much larger retention rate than you might have otherwise had if libraries were strictly physical. So keeping people embedded adjusting PlayStation now, adjusting the way that, that Sony's going about creating this PlayStation ecosystem setting up for PS5, I think they've got a, a good handle on where they want to go with this next gen. Now, Microsoft's strategy is similar to what it wanted it to be in 2013, but I believe the market is far more ready for it. The idea of a fully digital library, accessible from anywhere, xCloud being an example of that, but not necessarily utilizing... Uh, or 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 dominating the conversation. We've got a physical box for you. It's gonna be powerful, you know. I I love to see that, and I love that uh, we've talked about Scarlet being a monster. We've talked about it being extremely powerful. You have to imagine that ray tracing at a hardware level is quite comfortably there, just just the way it is with the Xbox One X. You have to imagine that load times will be good with with uh, solid state drives, rechargeable com- uh, controllers. All the things you're seeing for the PlayStation 5, I want to and expect to see with Scarlet. Furthermore, I can take my Xbox One library with me. Amazing. When you've created a system that's built on achievements, save states, backward compatibility, forward compatibility, you should have a number of players, uh, gamers, uh, retained and moving forward with you into the next era of Xbox. Furthermore, they are building themselves to become a brand that is accessible from many, many places. You know, if we're going to be having subscription services like Game Pass, this all and and XCloud is on the horizon. This only means that 10, 12, 15 years from now, uh, just like Netflix evolved from discs and now it's accessible on any device, your Xbox platform, your Xbox library, your gaming library could be available to you on, on nearly any wirelessly connected device. And that to me is promising. It's a good sign. I think that's a good thing. I'm looking forward to seeing where that goes. That's a, that's a, to me, that's a promising prospect. And and hopefully, that's the direction it goes. And my prediction's not overly and way off. We'll see. 
We'll see. In that same vein uh, of xCloud conversations, you have to look at the, the most recent news of Google Stadia. It was announced this past week that Google Stadia uh, is going to be creating a, a latent, what's something called negative latency. The idea that, that in a few years' time, the, the load and response times on Google Stadia streaming service will outpace that of physical consoles in the room with you. And there's been a lot of exaggerant approach to this. Oh my gosh, Google Stadia is going to play the game for you. It's not going to let you choose what's going to what the outcome is going to be. And I think that's a really silly and and uh, leaping to conclusions based attitude. I think that's a poor choice on gamers' part to just presume that they understand and know this technology. What is more likely to happen is that that Stadia is going to employ uh, technologies that allow them to operate on predictive algorithms the idea that what they'll do is run a finite number of scenarios because in any game uh, engine there are a finite number of scenarios that can be uh, activated from the player's input at any given time and what is likely to happen is stadia will run the each one of those scenarios in the background and based on player inputs simply activate the scenario that the player chosen if they chose to press a in that scenario activated is that particular screen but in the background stadia is playing everything and it's the gamer that is selecting what it is that that's that's operating there at least that's my my interpretation because when you look at current physics engines they're not so advanced and we should not be so arrogant to think that we are not predictable people if google can uh, understand that i am not at home but staying at a hotel if they can understand that i am at at the store and and very very quickly uh, manage that i'm probably going to go home next and tell me my time to come home and if Teslas can drive us places and adapt to all the scenarios on the road and keep drivers safe, then it's absolutely possible for the Stadia to take a finite physics engine with only a certain number of outcomes and based on rules and systems and predict what the player is going to do uh, or, what the, or what the player could do and adapt to that. And Google is extremely well-versed at handling data tracking and understanding likely scenarios based on that data tracking like it or love it that's not i'm not arguing uh, a political point or a philosophical point but it is very simple and easy to operate when you understand the, the world of physics uh and finite outcomes that's just that's just my take on it and i wonder what that means for xcloud because if if google's negative latency is operating in the stadiaverse you have to wonder, is xCloud built on that exact same technology or a similar technology to it? Or is it, is it going to employ a similar predictive system? Or is there something totally different? Is it just playing the game input-based and streaming it to you, hoping that its latency is that low? I don't know. I do not know. I know that when we were at E3, Sean Capri uh, played the xCloud demo, checked it out, got the pin, saw it, and essentially walked away saying, yeah, I get it. It's not ready yet. And we've heard interviews with Phil Spencer saying, yep, it's it's there, it's impressive, uh, but it's not shippable at this time. And this is the time of year now where we're going to start seeing uh, beta rollouts where, you know, I, and I've applied for it. I'm looking forward to kind of enabling a Bluetooth controller, booting it up, booting a game up on my Pixel 3, and seeing how xCloud works. And I think once we have more experiences out there in the wild across out across systems and uh, places where we don't have controlled environments, we'll know far more how well xCloud is prepared to compete with Stadia and just what that race means. What I say, I, I've said before, and I will say this again, I really like that Microsoft is hedging its bets on creating a physical console for local, 
creating a streaming platform in xCloud. I like the idea that Game Pass exists and that you're creating an ecosystem that my library travels with me, travels forward, and my library is indeed rotating. It doesn't seem to be rotating in and out as fast as what PlayStation Now is intending to do at the moment with some of its major players, but I really like that all major first parties are there. So I'm looking forward to Halo Infinite. And there's some news with 343 recently that just broke, but uh, we'll talk about that in a bit. I like that Halo Infinite will be there. Outer Worlds, while Private Division's game uh, and, and Obsidian's game is going to be releasing on Switch, I'm sorry, on PC, on PlayStation 4, and Xbox One, it is Xbox gamers that do not need to buy it. You can play it under Xbox Game Pass. I love that. I dig it. I love that we're seeing Xbox Game Studios pop up on splash screens prior to, to games on other systems and in Steam. That's a good thing. You're prepping for your future, but also keeping your own internal studios operating. And when you have that many studios, uh, the goal is likely to have one major exclusive per quarter. And if two of those in a year speak to you, well, it is two exclusives a year that, that sold uh, systems throughout history. You know what I mean? Spider-Man, God of War. Those are the ones that pop into my mind. Because the other systems, they played The Witcher 3. They played uh, Overwatch and many other things. But, you know, who knows? Who knows? Exclusives are, are indeed important, but availability and accessibility are equally important. And that's just something I, I think we have to consider. When you look at accessibility, you're often talking about physical inputs. And we've had the adaptive controller hit the market. We've seen a number of, of games more recently, uh, Ghost Recon Breakpoint and Gears 5 come to mind, where they're adapting almost immediately. They've got menus that read to the player out loud for players to opt out of, colorblind menus immediately, uh, hearing impaired, visual impaired uh, games that are that are arriving. And that is a great conversation, and not but not the one I'm aiming for in this very moment. Uh, when I talk about accessibility, I want to look at the way gamers are meant to interact with games uh, based on the laws and traditions and cultural aspects of that area. And this kind of reminds me, or rather what's bringing this up, I should say, is the Hong Kong protests and what that's doing to Blizzard's business acumen and business sense and the idea that those in China, those uh, major companies in China, rather, could potentially dictate what's happening with American companies. I think... One of the things that pleases me about this conversation, and stick with me here, I think that because of the faux pas and the absolute shooting itself in the foot that Blizzard has made recently, uh, it has called to light and activated a group of people in video game fans uh, that are very powerful in their messaging and their ability to message on the internet. And it has shed light on an issue, a human rights issue, that is hopefully bringing more conversations to the forefront of people's minds. It's not just about playing Warcraft anymore. It's not just about playing Overwatch. What is Blizzard's choice to support or not support different protests or, or political statements throughout the world? What does that mean for gamers when they go and select or choose to play a game or choose not to play a game? I mean, the idea of Boycott Blizzard is permeating throughout the, the industry right now. I don't, I don't play Blizzard games, so I, I, my stance on that is, is moot. However, I'm absolutely on the side of people that, that deserve you know, freedom and human rights. And so what statement am I making? What statement is another person making if they just love the game Overwatch or they love the game Warcraft and they want to play it? Furthermore, what does this say about, about those who work at Blizzard and saw, did, did not see this coming 
are upset with it. We've, we've heard of walkouts. We've heard of people within Blizzard being frustrated. What does this mean for them? And it's a conversation that we've had multiple times, but not to this degree. You know, when Gearbox was going through its turmoil with Randy Pitchford's statements uh, to the public and, and with some of the legal disparities there, what did that mean for employees of Blizzard? Should you boycott Gearbox? And I think the large answer was, yeah, nobody did because uh, Borderlands 3 uh, apparently is doing quite well. I have not had my, a chance to play it. Um, it just isn't in the docket for me at the moment, but I'm excited to. Uh, those those behaviors didn't lead me to boycott the game. But this, with the Blizzard stuff, seems to be taking it to another level. And I'm curious if gamers respond or respond at all. And, and, and I, I don't know if they will. Uh, on a sales perspective, I, I'm very aware that they will speak out against it. But will they stop buying games? I don't know. Overwatch is a powerful brand. Blizzard is a powerful brand. Diablo, powerful brand. I mean, there's, there's, those are powerful things. Could not happen at a worse time, though, for them. Goodness gracious, with BlizzCon coming up and the debacle that was the mobile announcement. Um, that's crazy. You know, quite separately, I, this is a total, total change of, of tone here. One of the things that irks me about some of our more hardcore gaming community is the way that we approach mobile games. Mobile games are great. Would you knock it off? It's fine that they exist. Now, predatory microtransactions, you got an argument there, right there. But because a game exists on mobile does not make it bad. It doesn't make it bad. Apple Arcade is bringing a number, number of great games to, to, to iPhone users and iDevice I, I users. Y'all are weird. I don't know. I use an Android because I'm superior in all ways, shape, or form. I don't actually think that, but it's funny to say. But mobile games are great. I love Gears Pop. Yeah, I hit a paywall, and I, I'm, not, I'm not loading more money into it. But I'm going to play Gears Pop if I have fun. Call of Duty Mobile, something like 100 million downloads. Now, that's downloads. I've downloaded it. I haven't played it yet, but apparently the game's pretty good. Rock on. Good. Mario Kart. Apparently it's not so great. All right, fine. Don't play it. But, but just because a game exists on mobile doesn't mean that it's bad. Now, I'll tell you this. Word to the wise for any developer making... Yeah, here you go. Here's, here's Insipid Ghost's advice to anybody making a, uh, a mobile game. I'm sure you care about my point, opinion. If you're going to announce a mobile game, don't do it at E3 and that's all you got. I really like the way Microsoft rolled out their Gears Pop announcement. They were like, hey, we're making Gears Pop. It's a mobile game. And we're all like, uh... And then they're like, by the way, Gears Tactics, Gears 5, and we're moving on to Gears Tactics, Gear 5. All right, cool. And Gears 5 is dope, and that's awesome. That's awesome. I, I like that. Speaking of Gears 5 real quick, I need them to fix their server issues. Goodness gracious, do I love Gears 5. It's fantastic, but it has a number of matchmaking issues. Still to this day, it's been a month from launch, and we're still frustrated with it. I don't like it. I don't like that. Let's fix it. Let's fix it. Oh, goodness gracious. So I'm playing Ghostbusters Remastered right now. And man, do I dig it. I will tell you what, Ghostbusters Remastered. I ended up um, being given a review code, which I was greatly appreciative of. I really appreciate that, especially launching a new project and, and streaming over on Mixer.com slash Ghost. Just crossed 650 followers. That's kind of a cool thing. So if you guys have a mic, uh, Mixer account or you want to help me out on stream there, go give a follow. But uh, I'm checking out Ghostbusters Remastered, and it's a great remaster. We live in a world where remasters don't always land well. They don't always do well. But I'm digging it. The story's fun. The gameplay is uh, as fun as I remember it. I put it on casual because baby mode is a blast, and I like to win and have a good time. The dialogue is hilarious. The actors, 
Uh, I mean, it's the original cast from Ghostbusters, and that's that's a good time. And of course, being me, the the lore master, as it were, I went back and started watching the Ghostbusters movies, and I'm just having a blast with it. But Ghostbusters remastered is a, is a high quality uh, remaster. It's great. I love it. I love seeing more of it. The story absolutely links up with the movies well. There's a ton of Easter eggs that are a good time, and it feels like a natural extension. Uh, if you missed this game when it came out in the PS3 360 era. Do yourself a favor and pick up the remaster. It's only 30 bucks. It's awesome. It's absolutely awesome. And, of course, uh, I'm, I donated an extra copy because I ended up getting a review copy. I bought one myself as well. Um, and if you check out Antonio Guillen's Hypecaster uh, on Twitter, Hypecaster on Twitter, that is, check out his Extra Life campaign. Donate 5 bucks or more. You're eligible to win uh, that copy of Ghostbusters Remastered. But it's only 30 bucks, guys. Check it out. It's fun. It is fun. It gets you in the mood for Halloween, spooky spookies. It's a good time. I do need more spooky games to play. I'm, I'm knocked out Blair Witch, and Emily wants to play, and I'm working on Ghostbusters. I need more to do. I need more to do. Hmm. We shall see. We shall see. Upcoming games. Upcoming games. Right now, I am looking at a couple different games coming out in this next month. And we talked about Doom Eternal being delayed. And that is a bummer. But Call of Duty Modern Warfare and The Outer Worlds... They pop out on October 25th. I am excited for both of these for very different reasons. We've had a lot of conversations in our gaming verse about what Call of Duty Modern Warfare's campaign is going to be. The idea that it essentially looks like live leak war footage, that you are going to be a child uh, in a war-torn area, and, you'll, and the, the player will have to make decisions and you know, operate under agency with the idea that uh, war is grotesque and awful and painful. And that's going to be hard on my soul, for sure. I am a... Ooh, I guess you could say an emotional person by nature. I'm greatly affected by things I see in film and TV and, and music and games especially. Like, they hit me. I feel emotional about it. And so I imagine this is going to mess with me just a bit. But Call of Duty games are, are fun. They get a bad rap a lot of times due to the microtransaction-heavy Activision portion. But gameplay-wise, I tend to, to really enjoy them. And so I'm very curious to see how gamers react to Modern Warfare. I'm curious to see the reviews of Modern Warfare. Now, don't misunderstand. I don't care about the scores per se. And I'll get into a topic about that a bit later. I'm not worried if the game is a 7, an 8, a 9, a 10. What I care about are what people are saying constructively to look at the formula for Modern Warfare, given the, the changeover that's happened, the internal rife with the studios, Who's making this? Who's not making that? What Infinity Ward? What Sledgehammer? What, oh goodness gracious, what the Treyarch? The way that they've had to turn over and change their productions uh, makes me wonder greatly how much of that was malicious, how much Activision was unhappy with the Call of Duty franchise, how much of that was just in prep for what was to, what is to launch and come with the PS5 Scarlet uh, timelines. I don't know, but Modern Warfare is going to be subject to a number of different scrutinies by way of its narrative choices, by way of the fact that it's called Modern Warfare, not Modern Warfare 4, not Call of Duty X Modern Warfare, or anything like that. It's just Modern Warfare. What does that mean? Is it a reboot? Is it a remake? Is it What is it? And they've described it largely as just like, yeah, you're taking the characters, but it's modernized. And we see that happen all the time. There's no shock value in that. I mean, you, you go read a Batman comic in 1989... Then you read a Batman comic in 1999, it's still Batman, still your same characters, but it's not the same, per se, and that's fine. I'm totally cool with that. It's, it's fiction. 
Outer Worlds is one that I'm looking forward to as well, if only to examine the way that it rolls out, it launches, how well it sells uh, on multiple platforms, given that it's on Game Pass. I'm still anxious to talk to Matt Piscatello or anybody in the industry about the way that gamers uh, are interacting with Game Pass games and what type of profitability that brings to the different companies. We know it's doing well, otherwise we wouldn't see so many major players uh, launch into Game Pass or join up with Game Pass outside of Xbox Game Studios. So I'm curious really to see what Outer Worlds does and if it's a quality game. I mean, we know it's the creators of Fallout. We know that Fallout itself and, and under Bethesda's care has certainly been in decline. I think there's no, there's no way around that conversation no matter how many jokes that E3 people make or, or how much they try to brush it off. Fallout's not doing well. Bethesda's not doing well. They need a win. They need a win. Doom Eternal's there. Hopefully it does it. Well, we'll see. Uh, but Outer Worlds, because of the because of the surrounding context of the game, I'm curious what it has. You know, we saw it at E3. Sean and I went, went in and saw it at E3. We, we, we left impressed, pleased. Looks like it was on the right track. I'm curious to see how it goes. I'm anxious to play it. And, and to be blunt, I'm glad that as a uh, primarily Microsoft gamer, I don't have to buy it. I can just check it out within Game Pass, and that's a hopeful thing. It's got to be tough, though. It's got to be tough if you're working at Private Division or Obsidian, and you know that your game is now partially Xbox Game Studios, but also hitting other platforms. It's got to be tough to, to package the messaging appropriately and still not, not alienate a user base, because you want to celebrate all your user bases so you can sell your product. What does that mean? I don't know. I don't know. Jedi Fallen Order is still on the, the horizon about a month away at this point, November 15th. I'm looking forward to that one. I'm buying that day one regardless. I hope it's good. I mean, it's Star Wars, so I'm excited. That one and the Lego Star Wars, you bet your bottom dollar I'm going to be picking it up because I love I love Star Wars, man. I love Star Wars. Tell me your – all right, real talk. What's your favorite – and this is to any listener. You know, Hit me up on Twitter at InsipidGhost. What's your favorite Star Wars game? Because I, I, favorites are a weird thing. You go back and forth. What's my favorite? I don't know. You know, what's your, the favorite versus best? It's always a different conversation. Uh, but when I think about my favorite Star Wars games, X-Wing Alliance, one of my favorite games of all time. It was a PC game back in the day in the vein of X-Wing versus TIE Fighter and whatnot. Great, great story, but then it's custom scenarios. Man, I would, I would, I would be playing my own soundtrack in the background, and I would set up scenarios where my group of X-Wings and, and Y-Wings and whatnot, we, we hijacked TIE Defenders, and then we were attacking Superstar Destroyers with Interdictor Cruisers next to it. I mean, it was Nerd Mode Central, and I had a blast. Uh, and then, of course, the Rogue Squadron games on the GameCube, amazing, uh, amazing. The 64 one just didn't, didn't uh, age well. You can't go back to that and enjoy it as much as you can, perhaps, the, the GameCube versions. But talk about games that need a remake or a remaster. Goodness gracious, where are they? What a formula for success. And then Episode 1 Racer is pretty great. Episode 1 Racer is pretty great. I used to play because I was a kid and because when you're a kid, you, you get what you get for your birthday kind of thing. I, we weren't spoiled in my house. Well, we were, we were fortunate, but not spoiled. Uh, episode 1 Phantom Menace on PS1. Now, that game was terrible. That game sucked. But, man, did I love playing it because when you see a lightsaber activate, it feels good. I don't know. And that kind of brings me to my major topic of the show. Uh, apart from all the discussion points, you know, what makes a game bad? What makes a game good? And I think we often use exaggerant language when we discuss games in, in 2019, 2018, in an age of, the, of social media sharing. Liking one thing for some reason condemns you to hating the opposite or con condemning a uh, competitor, and I think that's dumb. I don't enjoy that. One of my some of my favorite conversations come with Mr. Bad Bit and some of my PlayStation friends, who 
who enjoy their games. And I love their games as well. I love playing games on my PlayStation. I love playing games on my Switch. It's great. And liking one doesn't make mean you dislike another. But what happens by way of those conversations, by accident almost, is that we condemn games that aren't perfect. If a game is not as good as Breath of the Wild, you know, well, yeah, but it's not as good as, you know, Horizon Zero Dawn or Breath of the Wild. Well, yeah, but it doesn't have to be. And the AA platform, the AA aesthetic, the AA approach kind of fell out at the beginning of this generation. PlayStation 4 really pushed their love for indies to fill their catalog because they lacked exclusives at the beginning. And Microsoft's exclusives just were, were completely misdirected. You know, you see Quantum Break and uh, Sunset Overdrive and, and Titanfall. They all missed for a number of reasons. And so without a double-A platform and a good relationship with indies, it kind of just, there you go. Uh, so in in kind of returning to form, we've seen companies like the, the, the new and revitalized THQ Nordic bring double-A games back. Bring them to the forefront. I think the Switch also had a lot to do with this. You know, you're seeing Darksiders be released uh, onto onto the Switch platform. That's fantastic because AA games, there's a lot of fun to be had there. I would argue games like like Dead Island, Crackdown, and Days Gone. Uh, though those are great AA games, but where there's time to and, and enjoyment to be had, even if it's got AAA visuals, but AA gameplay. Or double A uh, story, but but great gameplay, or or any combination therein. A lot of things make up a game. Pulling up the THQ Nordic uh, screen right now, and they talk about all the games they have in development. Dead by Daylight's there. Wreckfest is there. City Skylines is there. Those are all great great experiences that may not be indie, but they're not quite triple A either. That's dope. That's awesome. I know a lot of people are excited for Battle for Bikini Bottom, the new SpongeBob game. I don't get it, but cool. Rock on. I mean, heck, I'm certainly not one to judge if you love a game. This War of Mine, okay, that game's great. I'm just I'm I'm scrolling through THQ's uh, pages and pages of games they've got coming out. I'm stoked for Biomutant and uh, Darksiders Genesis. I dug Darksiders Genesis at uh, at E3. That's cool. That's fun. I mean, I I think double A games uh, should be allowed to be good. And just because a game is not a ten doesn't make it bad or uh, a trash, as the kids say. And that's something I think we should all work on in our own narratives. You know, we should all consider the way we dialogue and, and converse about games publicly. Crackdown is not a bad game. Not a good one. Or not a great one, I should say. I think it's good. I had a good time with it. But it's not a bad game. It's not unplayable. Dead Island, another great example. I had so much fun with Dead Island, the, the Xbox One release. I loved that game, man. It's not a bad game, but it's, it's no 8 or 9. That's for sure. It's ripe with issues. You know, I think there's there's room for us to enjoy games without the, the verbiage that, that it's the worst or best. And that's something we need to explore and, and have a good time with. And if you're having fun with it, does it matter if it's a bad game? I think in a world where the share button is so important and what you're saying online is important, yes, it does matter. But how much it matters, that's up to you and your own personal agency, and you got to consider it. Um, I certainly find myself, and I hear others championing games that they love, but they're championing it so much that people are just writing it off. Halo Wars 2 is a game that I love. What a great game that is. But it's a niche game. It's not for everybody, even in the Halo fans. I mean, it's just not, not there. And so the more I championed it, the more people tuned it out. You see this happen all over with all types of media. I don't want to be, I don't want to be that guy that loses out on a great experience because someone championed it and I ignored it. 
Furthermore, I don't want to lose out on great games or, or fun games, I should say, because it doesn't land a 10 on some Metacritic. And Metacritic no longer matters the way it did. How many times have you seen a game launch, land well on Metacritic, and then all of a sudden microtransactions are, pop, are popping up in it? What's the new Crash Team Racing game? I uh, played it, reviewed it, enjoyed it. I got a review card for it, so just to be clear, it's you know all cards on the table. I thought it was a good game. I was like, man, it's a good kart racer. It's not Mario Kart. It's doing its own thing. Cool. And then a few weeks later, we're getting microtransactions dropped into it. And that changes. That changes the way we interact with the game. Gears 5, incredible game. I think it deserves all the nines in the world. But the, the multiplayer suite is still ripe with, with connection issues. Does that change the narrative? Does that change the score of the game? Does that change the way we interpret it? I think it should change. I don't know what it means. I don't know that it's the worst or best. Goodness gracious, I have so much fun with that game. That's just. I guess those are just talking points, and I would ask anybody out there who's still listening, consider your verbiage when you're discussing a game. Consider that if you just champion nonstop, people will tune you out. Consider also if something's always the best or worst, then you're probably not doing that game a service. Wreckfest is a fantastic racer, but it's a niche racer. It's a destruction derby racer. It's not the best racer to ever hit, but it's the best destruction derby racer. But are people going to hear that? Or are they just going to hear a good racer? What should they hear? I don't know. It's a question for you guys. Uh, hit me up on Twitter and let me know, at Ghost. We did get one question this week uh, for our final closing thoughts on XCP this week. Uh, Brendan Myers asks, what are some games that were the spotlight this generation, but then quickly overshadowed by another game? Uh, and when you hear its name, it makes you remember how great it was. Oh, man. I think... Um, well, I don't think Anthem's a great game, but it was certainly overshadowed by Apex. Um, Titanfall 1. Titanfall 1 was a great game that was immediately overshadowed by kind of the Call of Duty conversation uh, and the Battlefield conversation when it launched, and that's a darn shame. Titanfall 2. It might be a Titanfall 2 that I'm thinking of. It's probably Titanfall 2. But what a great game Titanfall 2 was, overshadowed by all the games that kind of came around, including other EA titles, which, you know, like, what are you doing there? What are you doing? Um, but, I mean, that's a great question for everybody. A game that you you know is great, and yet it's overshadowed by what came around it. And then if you get a chance to go back and look, you're like, oh, you know what? This is good stuff. It's good stuff. And I'll give a, I'll champion one thing real quick. I, I will say that Game Pass is good for that kind of stuff because if you miss it kind of in its launch, you're able to go back and check it out. And I think Game Pass is great for that. So I would encourage you guys to... Kind of just scroll through there. I mean, I, I missed Dead Cells when it launched, and man, I am addicted to that game right now. It's on Game Pass, PC, and uh, and console, and I'm just, dude, I love that game. It's so much fun. So much fun. So, you know. Well, guys, I think that is it for me. It's been a great episode. I've thoroughly enjoyed talking with you. I hope you enjoyed it. I accidentally went over time, and wouldn't you know it, had a blast doing it. Uh, thank you so much to Adam Leonard for the uh, art and the music for this episode. Thank you guys for writing in and supporting and sharing it on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and Spotify. That's it for me. Take care, everybody.